there's a right job for you and a right time to be doing that job. You may be in a great job and it may not be the right time in your life to be doing it. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Audie Cornish. She is an award-winning journalist who is now an anchor and correspondent for CNN. Before she joined CNN, Audie was at NPR for 17 years, where she was the host of their flagship news show, All Things Considered. Now you can catch her on your phone and TV, where she'll host a podcast for CNN Audio and will appear on the network covering national, political, and breaking news. Audie, welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Hey, thanks for having me. We forgot to say maybe the most important part of your resume is that on our Skim Your Life book tour, Audie interviewed us uh, in D.C. Um, and so now we get to flip the table and interview you, which is a little nerve wracking for us. It was one of the most fun crowds <laughs> in terms of audience. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, we had so much fun with you. We had a great time and it feels like a different world. Yes, it does. Yes. Well, we're going to jump into our lightning round. We like to do that before we jump into the conversation so we can get to know you better. It is quick questions, quick answers. Are you ready? Uh, Yes. We are good. All right. First job. First job was at a bagel bakery in my hometown. What is your go-to bagel order today? Oh. (laughs) The thing is, I really like the bagel itself to be good. So I don't like when there's like a ton of stuff. Like I'm definitely the kind of person who will just get butter, you know. Me too. Oh my gosh. Me too. I am a bagel purist. Yeah, we're very pro-bread on this call, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember at what, like people sometimes would have really wild orders, you know. It would be like, oh, I want butter and cream cheese and egg. And and I'm just like, first of all, all those things don't go together. And second of all, it's just like a lot, you know? It's it's too Um, much. You don't have enough surface area for that. Yeah, unless it's a crummy bagel. Then I'm like, yeah, put all kinds of stuff on it and just hide and jam and get your life. (laughs) Okay, finish this sentence. What best describes your workday? Working nine till blank. (laughs) working nine to cry because (laughs) I have a four and a two-year-old. And by the time I get home, sometimes like they just don't care what kind of day you've had, like period. Their attitude is very much, where have you been? And what are the the problems you can solve for me? Uh, And I I arrive home right at the time when they're kind of losing it. (laughs) This is just before bed or just after dinner. So, yeah. What's something uh, we can't Google about you? Hmm. This is a hard one. I'm kind of an open book. Um, As a journalist, I sort of believe in transparency. And while there's some things for my own 
family's safety I'm very private about. In general, when it comes to me, I'm pretty open because I, I don't have a whole lot to hide. And even if I did, I think we've all learned that like hiding stuff never lasts for long, <laughs> right? It always, something always comes out or it comes out of you sideways, right? It can really affect your health and behavior. So I feel like that was an unnecessarily dark answer, but that is the truth. Hey, um, we go lightning around, the truth comes out. It's fine. What's the last show you binge watch? Oh, um, well, I'm about to binge Severance. I can feel it coming. Like I watched the first one and I'm like, if I sit down, I'm going to watch all of these. Okay, I want you to tell me if you like it because I can't decide if I'm going to watch it or not. Oh. So you'll have to circle back. Not, it's a show about ideas and I'm a sucker for that kind of thing. Um, You know, to me, something that's unpacking, you know, in this, the irony of work-life balance is total catnip for me. Um, And I also like puzzle box shows, you know, like I was a person who watched Westworld and like, you know, I just like original content, so to speak. I have nothing against standing IP, which is like how we are entertained these days. But I just think it takes such tenacity. Was that a very smart way to say reality TV? No, no. Actually, I was thinking more like the biggest franchises you can think of that then become like, prequels and sequels and prequels to the okay, sequels. It was a, it was and a, a fancy way to say law and order. Got it. I don't necessarily want to live in certain universes forever. <laughs> All right. So we yeah. see eye to eye on bagel, not on that, but that's fine. <laughs> but I like reality television. <laughs> I mean, I'm on. Well, what's your favorite reality show? Right now, Love is Blind. Oh my God, I'm obsessed. Um, and then the high art version, which is Dating Around. Both are Netflix properties. Dating Around is incredible. Everyone go run and watch it. It is, first of all, beautifully filmed. And it is one person who goes on, I think, five dates. And the thing that's brilliant about it is it's gorgeously edited. So the person wears the same outfit on all of the dates, but the camera shows you like an intercut date right? Of like what everybody's saying when the drink comes, what everyone is saying when the dinner comes. So it actually weirdly puts you in the seat of the person doing the dating because your point of view is fixed. It's through the idea of the dater. So everyone dating around season one has lived there in the shadows and the bowels of Netflix for the last year or two. Okay. Here's my last question. Who is somebody you have not yet interviewed you would love to interview? Oh, I hate this question. Um, No, no, not for you reasons, but because (laughs) having that kind of person in a way puts them on a kind of pedestal. You know what I mean? Like, it's actually hard. First of all, your heroes are terrible, which I, you know, lots of people will listen and feel that here. Um, But also, you you can't interview someone if you think they're, like, amazing. What's an event you would like to cover that you haven't? You know, I've, I've wanted to do a presidential debate for a long time, even though it's become one of the most thankless jobs in journalism. It's like 100%. <laughs> just like, I mean, I feel like they would answer you. You know what I mean? Like, I think something about talking to journalists, it's just I think the down. three of us, we should do a presidential debate. You heard it here first. Listen, young women, they're after it. So trust me. Okay, let's move on to the actual interview. I want to talk about the early days of Audi. How did you know you wanted to get into journalism? 
Uh, I didn't know I wanted to get into journalism until college. And I met, I tried a bunch of things. It was like political science and economics and education. And I met a professor who was like, you know, there is a, a discipline that does all of those things. And prior to that point, I didn't actually have very much interest in journalism. I saw it as... I don't know, like everyone I knew who wanted to do it wanted to do sports journalism or communications. And I just was like, I don't think that's for me. You know, someone introduced it to me in a very holistic way of like, hey, there's a way to engage the world really directly. And that I think I just sort of never looked back after having that experience. I love what you described as like you were kind of into the things that were considered dinosaurs or you always (laughs) felt like the dinosaur. Yeah. And the idea that you you were drawn to legacy media companies and not to, I guess at the time, you know, blogs or more digital first media orgs. Why? And also, did you feel ever like peer pressure to to jump ship as you saw peers in the industry doing things at, at newer places? You know, I think something that's sort of little understood about that period of time, I would say sort of early odds, is like, you had to have money to do that. Do you know what I mean? Like, like so many internships were unpaid. All of these little startups to get into them was some strange dance of networking, social connections, and the ability to live in New York. And I didn't have any of that. You know, I was just like a kid at state school on financial aid, being an RA, having three jobs, and I wanted to work. And I wanted to work for money, which in journalism is actually a complicated ask because so many places expect you to intern before you're somehow viable to work. Or you have to take a job that isn't quite the journalism you want to be doing in the hopes that you can somehow leap once you're, quote unquote, in a building. And it just makes it very difficult. And I think now many more places have paid internships, but at the time that wasn't that common. So for my friends who were able to just sort of move to New York, be in an apartment and like work for some place, that worked great for them. But I just did not have that option. And then there was also a little bit of a cool kid factor, I think, to that period of blogging as well. Snark was the highest compliment you could be given. And I wasn't like that, you know. And so I think I just kind of inadvertently boxed myself out of it. And I just figured, like, I might as well lean all the way in, you know. Like, I really like radio. No one cares about it. I really like talking to real people. No one cares about them right now. I'm just going to do that. You know, I think I approached journalism as like a working class job that you did because you cared about your community. That's sort of where my head was at. I'm going to preface this by saying, I mean, this as a compliment. You are really good at talking. How did you develop like that strong communication style? That's an interesting question. I come from a household of talkers. I'm Jamaican. My parents are both Jamaican. And I come from a family of professional people. Everybody is like a nurse or works in some office job. And we have fun together. And when I was a kid and we were at the dinner table, my parents spoke about the day's events or things they were thinking of with us. 
And while we were cleaning up the table, we were also expected to kind of chime in. And what do you think about that? And okay, tell me when you hear that, what do you think? And so I think I was invited at a, at a young age to really engage in conversation with my family. And I think about that a lot now with my own kids who are quite young. Like, how do I talk to them in a way that's respectful and respectful of the intellect they have where they are right now? Um, and that allows them to feel heard. So I I brought this up and I asked this question because we've always admired you as an interviewer. Like you're one of the absolute best interviewers there are out there. And there's a reason that you've had such a successful career in the beginning on radio. And you're a really just strong communicator that I think knows how to get really sometimes difficult conversations across and sometimes really pointed conversations across. And I think one of the things that like we have struggled with as managers is like learning how to communicate. I think it's something that is like a a word that's thrown around a lot um, where there's like a real art to it. What is your advice to those who are like, how do I learn my communication style? How do I learn to have tough conversations in the workplace? I'm so glad you asked this. And I wish more people asked this because so much of my work at a certain point, I realized like, you know, I think part of my job is actually even modeling conversation. Like, how do you talk about things? Because I realized so many people had a hard time with it. Number one, if you're a woman, you can't win. So that's the one thing you should take on board. I 100% have gotten so much for being too strident and uh, intimidating. And, you know, like my, the same things you're sort of complimenting are things that hamstrung me, right, for many years of my career, because it was just somehow like too much. And then meanwhile, there's like another whole kind of strata of young women who people are judging about their voice, and whether they have upspeak and whether their voice is too high. And you can see someone like (laughs) the Theranos, (laughs) the former CEO, trying to compensate for that, right? Like we're all trying to do these workarounds for these judgments. Um, In terms of communication, I think one of the biggest things I had to learn, because I did have a come to Jesus moment where I was like, maybe I am intimidating. I don't know how this works. Like I need to figure this out, is listening and really hearing. Because sometimes people are saying something to you, but they're really telling you something else. And a lot of times I've had to stop myself and say, okay, I need to listen all the way to the end of this sentence. And then when it's done, if I don't understand, sometimes I have to say, can you tell me that again? I don't think I fully grasp what you were trying to articulate here. And if you say it in a way that says like, no, I'm really listening and I want to understand, it's funny how people will reframe and say something in an easier way to explain. And that's something I use as an interviewer all the time, but I've used it, you know, in arguments with my husband or (laughs) my kid, you know, just saying like, slow down. What are you, what are you really trying to tell me? And then lastly, to have some empathy because everybody was raised in very different ways. And some people being loud is their way of communicating, right? Or not quite telling you what they want to say right away that's a learned behavior. And I found that that book about um, attachment styles, it helped me understand that there are some people who like, they want to avoid conflict at all costs, even if that cost is 
efficiency in the workplace, right? <laughs> or like efficiency in your communication style. Some people just need a lot of handholding. They need to be told all the time, you're doing okay, you're doing okay. This book actually really helped me get a grasp on where am I on this spectrum and what does that mean for the way I interact with people? I want to I wanna transition a little bit to you becoming a mom, which you've talked about. So you have two sons. And I, in yeah. the beginning, you said they're four and two. I have an 18-month-old and I'm very pregnant with my second. So I'm oh, like, congratulations. Please give me all the advice because I feel like my world is about to get turned upside down. You had what you called a professional identity crisis when you became a mother. Like, do tell. What was that like? (laughs) Look, I think if you're really ambitious, you spend so much time, especially as a femme or woman in the workplace, basically being like, this is who I am. You know what I mean? Like, this is why you should take me seriously. Look at me. I'm putting in the most hours than anyone. I'm speaking up at all the meetings and I'm super prepared. And, you know, you spend a lot of time preparing for and making yourself ready for the work, whatever your work is. And all of a sudden you don't have that. Like you just don't have it. Like you haven't slept. You, <laughs> your baby has decided to be in the middle of its sleep regression or only wants to breastfeed or only wants a bottle or all of these things that will go by quickly, but it's just so intense. It's another whole job. And the thing that people don't tell you in all the movies is you want to be doing it. And the thing you're, you're trying to manage is you, is that disconnect? You're like, wait, I didn't want this. (laughs) I'm so happy you said that because I feel like so much of the conversation out there is how to keep going and manage around it. And what I struggle with is like, I do want to be there. And in a way that I didn't think that I would. And also, and I feel like this is probably a common theme in people who are extremely motivated and ambitious is like you like control and you cannot control their schedules. And that drives me insane. I'm like, here's my time that I have blocked out to like be this active parent. Why can't you be like (laughs) good with that? Yeah. They don't care. They don't care at all. And that's great. You know, I think we need that. There's no way to control anything. Look at the parents in Ukraine right now. Nothing is in your control. And I feel like um, delivering a child, like going, going through the process of pregnancy and delivering a child taught me some of that. I've had friends who've gone through adoption where they also feel that, like a child has appeared when that child was ready to be with them, but like there's no way to be ready for it. And those things are out of your control. Um, And number two, like we shouldn't be ruled by work. And I like that children take back what is theirs to take from you. And where you feel the crisis is when you're at work and you're like, oh, you know, I really wish I had done X, Y, and Z because I would like to be doing it. But when I'm at home, if he tells me he wants to read a book, I stop, drop, (laughs) and read the book, right? Because I don't know when I'll be back. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'll be traveling. And I want to have that experience. Did you think this way before you had kids? No, because like I didn't want kids. (laughs) 
<laughs> I was going to live in a high-rise apartment and have my nails done all the time. I was never going to cook. I mean, I had it all mapped out. I had seen how, Made to Exhale. <laughs> I was like, it doesn't look good. Okay, Black women, like every magazine article was like, you'll never get married. You'll never do this. You'll never do that. And I had internalized that. I was like, okay, sweet. I'll just do my job. And I met a lot of women in journalism who didn't have kids, who were still killing it in the game. And so I had models of people who had made really wonderful lives and communities for themselves with no kids. I also think one of my fears before I had kids is what you touched on, which is I uh, was scared of becoming the person that would want to be there for everything because that's a model I didn't know how to deal with. And it's very rare that I hear people very honestly talking about that. It's almost like sometimes you you over-index the other way. How have you reframed your idea of like career success? Um, I had to stop outsourcing my value, right? We have a tendency to put our value in the hands of bosses, of lovers, of people outside of ourselves who are like, you're doing great. And you're like, I am doing great because you said it. <laughs> Instead of being like, I'm doing great because I said it. You know what I mean? Like to really take a real inventory of what you have accomplished, you know? And in your case, like, Danielle, you've accomplished so much, right? Like you literally have nothing else to prove. And the thing you're going to be fighting is the thing you do to yourself that's gotten you this far, which is like coming up with new brass rings and like trying to prove and prove and prove. I think it's been interesting watching men and male caretakers experience the pandemic and experience the all of us have been feeling, which is like, yeah, when you're in a meeting and everyone says it's going to go extra long or we need to do this, and you're like, but I can't and don't want to, that feeling all y'all suddenly had, that's how it's been for us for a good 35 to 40 years, you know, since what we consider the modern workplace. Um, people have not made it easy for caretakers to do their best work simply because they've been unaccommodating. And the pandemic has shown that there is a way to be accommodating and that employers just haven't wanted to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, that's been wild to see. I also saw, you know, in, in reading about this time in your life that you did, I think, ironically, what a lot of women do, which is you have kids, you go back and you take on more, right? Yeah, you Instead, overcompensate. Yes. Like, why Why did you Why did you do that? And why do you think that so many women do that? Because that is also something that, like, I'm fighting against. Yeah. I mean, when you get bored. Because the monotony of early child rearing, like it's monotonous. It's like nurse, poop, change, nurse, poop, change. Like, yes, they bring a lot of joy to your life, but like, make no mistake, some of that shit is boring. And you do it for months and months and months. And you're like, I kind of want to go back to work. You know, I kind of want to wear pants that aren't elastic anymore. Like all the things people felt in the pandemic about being home too much welcome to early motherhood. Like to me, I felt like, oh, now you all know what it feels like. You haven't seen a movie. You're not wearing the clothes you want to wear. You feel completely uncomfortable and vaguely scared all the time because you're trying to keep something safe. 
Like, this is what it feels like, everyone. So I think you feel bored. I think number two, when you come back to the office, I sort of perceived a kind of condescension. uh, And how do I say this? I don't always feel like people are completely honest about letting you come back slowly. I do feel like sometimes, depending on your workplace, and especially if you have a workplace where people have ascended who haven't had to go through a caretaking experience, um, and not just kids, I just mean caretaking, right? Like, they don't know how to ease up. They see it as slowing down. Like, it's like, you're here to work, you're here to do this job the way I want it. And like, it's funny watching, again, CEOs adjust to this moment where they can't just be like, I want you here five days a week in this cubicle farm, regardless of whether you need to be here or not, regardless of the kind of work you're doing or not. And just having a bunch of people out there be like, but what if no? You know what I mean? Like, I think I really wanted to overcompensate because I felt like they don't think I'm as good as I used to be. And they don't, and I'm not indispensable anymore, right? Because when you leave, you realize like, of course, this job will go on without me. And if you spent all of your 20s trying to prove to everyone they can't do it without you, well, that's a wake-up call, right? That's really scary. Adi, you are you are definitely speaking some scary truths today. <laughs> You'll be fine. I feel like I need to this tell you therapy this week. how great <laughs> you're going to be. Oh, I did therapy throughout, by the way. That yeah. was the, I didn't do anything else, but I was like, I'm worried about postpartum. I like spoke to the therapist ahead of time. I knew where my brain would go. <laughs> so trust yourself. Like I'm purposely not interjecting because like I don't have kids yet. Um, and but why I asked, like, did you feel this before? Is like I remember in the early days, well before like Danielle and I were even in a state of mind to even think about kids, people always would say to us, like, you know, when are you guys gonna like settle down? Not with each other. And like, and, like, when are you guys gonna have kids? And like my kind of stock answer was like when work slows down or you know, when the skim is like more grown up. Yeah, and work will never was, slow down. Well, I think one, like that was like a defense mechanism, but two, it was a very honest answer of like, I can't possibly think about changing my personal life identity at home until I get my career into the place and my company into the place that I want it to be. And for those that are listening that maybe haven't gone through the life changes yet that come with having a family in whichever way that looks like for you. What is your advice around how to think about planning ahead and how to think about not sacrificing your ambition and career, but also like creating the personal life that you want to have? First of all, your answer is completely in line with many, many, many women in the U.S. right now. The reports about fertility rates, the reports about why people are waiting to marry those are all the reasons. And in fact, there's been a lot of reporting about the fact that how marriage has become basically a upper class institution because people who feel financially ready and all these things you're talking about are the ones who end up doing it. Um, Number two, someone said something early in my career. I watched an interaction happen where a mom was like, hey, I'm going to go home, but I'm going to come back and finish this work and blah, blah, blah. And this person said after they walked away, you know, this is so annoying. Don't make your kid my problem. And it was a woman who said this. And it really affected me. It really made me more empathetic. But it 
again, you asked earlier, like maybe why I overcompensated. You know, I think I still had that comment ringing in my brain all the years later that even other women in the workplace might be kind of unsympathetic. In terms of your actual question about figuring it all out, you can't figure it all out. There's no way to. <laughs> so don't try and do that. You can like freeze your eggs and then maybe X amount of years, something else happens and blah, blah, blah. So I would not worry about all that. And I've been telling people to partner well, meaning the partners in your life, you two are partners, right? Foster your working relationships and, and personal relationships. Keep the ones close where there's reciprocity. You know what I mean? Where the friendship is based on a little bit of empathy and understanding. You're like hot to trot friend who's just like, let's go on vacation for my birthday. And like, it doesn't matter if you can afford it or not and blah, blah, blah. That's not the person you want around later when you have kids. That person can come visit at the shower. But like, think about the people you begin to hold close. It may be the roommate you have right now. It may be this friend at work. Even when you change jobs, keep in touch with that friend. And we can't help who we love. But when you're partnering with someone, add this to the list of red flags, you know, like, does the person see themselves as a kind of partner? Hey, you do a little of this. I'll do a little of that. Together, we'll make it work. If there's not that together, we'll make it work vibe, I kind of feel like that person should hit the bricks. They're not ready and they may not be ready for what you want to do in your life. And I think that's hard for people to do when you also have all kinds of like delusions in your head about fireworks and romantic love and what that's supposed to look like for years and years and years. Um, more and more, I roll over and look at my husband and I'm like, you're the sh- I love you, you know, like you are amazing <laughs> because, you know, he's the guy who was always like, let's do this together. I think support systems are so key no matter who it is you're in the position of being a caregiver for. And I think that's something we're seeing women in so many different parts of their lives have to to navigate. So speaking of navigating. Yeah. Transitions. Um, you recently left a job where you were at NPR for a really long time to take on a new role at CNN plus. How did you know, like I'm ready for change? I am perpetually professionally dissatisfied. (laughs) You know, I think even one thing people didn't seem to notice is even at NPR, I had changed jobs repeatedly. You know, I was based out of Nashville at one point as a kind of regional correspondent. And then I was covering Congress. I covered presidential elections. And then I started hosting in, in I think, maybe my late 20s. Like, that wasn't even a job that people my age really did. Um, and even then, I changed hosting jobs a couple of times. So I think there's a part of me that's like every two to three years, like I get a new brass ring, I want a challenge, I make the challenge happen. And then when the challenge is done, I'm like, where's the next mountain? I think that's just like part of how I'm built. My mom was a little bit the same way. And to my mind, the change was probably even a little bit overdue. Uh, And it's been like, it's been wild, like watching kind of how people processed it or like had a dialogue about it, right? That's one of the fascinating things about the news is like a narrative is not necessarily your story, but it is a communal kind of exercise and and people um, making sense of things. We have a listener question from Alicia. Alicia wants to know, 
Were you nervous at all to start over at a new organization? And how did you get over those nerves? Was nervous, is nervous, continue to be nervous, nervous right now, hate being on camera. Every single day, I'm like, I can't believe you did this. I'm like, why? Why did you think you could do this? It's like I have the full scale. You still have that? Do you find that motivating, though? I don't recommend it. Um, I think I did start to get worried when I lost it a little bit, right? Like, there's the feeling of, like, I have mastered this. And then there's this feeling of, like, I think I can do this with little to no effort. But the caveat is that when I had my kids, it was really, I was really grateful to be in a job that I had mastered because I didn't have to be going at the pace I had gone when I was younger. I knew how to conduct five interviews a day. I knew where to focus and when. I knew how to compartmentalize. You know, this is the kind of thing that I think people should process a little bit more for themselves, which is there's a right job for you and a right time to be doing that job. You know, you may be in a great job and it may not be the right time in your life to be doing it. It's a great, great point. When I was having my kids and they were just born, it was great (laughs) being at a job that I knew, understood and could come back and just do. Hence the overcompensation, right? Because I'm like, I'm so good at this. I'll do two others. Like, don't do that. But now I'm out of that phase, right? They're at least like potty training. So now I did feel more comfortable taking on something more, learning new skills. It was like sort of the right moment to do it. Adi, want to thank you um, for this therapy session today. Uh, saved, <laughs> saved us both money this week. Listen, so it goes both <laughs> ways. It goes both ways. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less. And we've also got another podcast, Pop Cultured with The Skim, where each week we're covering the pop culture moment everyone's talking about. New episodes drop every Tuesday. 